Hey, this is Joe Bakmutsky, and welcome to Simplify Cancer Podcast. Isn't it true that cancer brings home the reality that you're not forever? And so you ask yourself, what happens if I die? Have I been the person that I've always wanted to be? How are people going to remember me? Today, our special guest, Joseph, answers these huge existential questions every single day. He's a rabbi who does some unbelievable work in the hospice, helping people who are facing cancer to really bring out life and to make peace with it. Thanks so much for your time. I've been really looking forward to it. Me as well. Thank you. Joseph, I've just read up on all the incredible work that you're doing in the hospice. How, how did you get started? So I was a congregational rabbi for about 16 years. And I found in the really in the course of doing that work that I was spending a lot of time in end-of-life care. And I was really drawn to the people that were so much in need. There was a lot of vulnerability to sort of that, that end-stage time period, end-stage illness, both from the patient's perspective as well as the family's perspective. And so I, I really spent a lot of time in the hospital holding people's hands, really just helping them reconcile relationships that they wanted to reconcile before they died. And, and so after 16 years of doing this over and over again and really feeling that I was making an, a meaningful impact, I decided to do this full time. And in the summer of 2014, I joined the Jewish Hospice and Chaplaincy Network here in Detroit. And the work that I do every single day, we manage almost 200 patients a day that are facing end of life illness, some in hospice care, some not yet in hospice care, some in palliative care. So treating them, their pain and their symptoms and getting them all aspects of help from social work care to spiritual care, which is what I do, to bringing them music and art and all kinds of different enrichments that will uplift their dignity. Well, Joseph, that's so fantastic. I don't have words to describe it. I mean, because cancer is such a really tough time for someone who's you're confronted with so many things. You're confronted with ultimate questions about life and death and I guess your place in the world. And I guess do any like sort of themes come up over and over again that you, that you kind of see for yourself? Yeah, you know, a lot of times I think a, a common theme, a common thread is people are really reflective about the life that they lived, the values that they lived. And if they have children or, or not even children, but family members, nieces, nephews, did, did they pass those values on to their loved ones? And so that's a big piece in terms of values. And, and did they did they live their values? That's not one one theme. Another theme is the reconciliation of relationships. You know, are there relationships that need to be reconciled or at least an attempt at reconciliation before they leave this world so that they can leave this world with a sense of purity of mind and spirit and soul? And it's also, I guess, a time for honesty, too. Um, a lot of times what I find is family members don't want to admit that their loved one is dying because, of course, it's very hard to, to deal with emotionally, psychologically. But what I find is that more often than not, the person that's dying wants to be honest about it so that they have a chance to say goodbye. And giving that person an opportunity to say goodbye, to gather their family, to gather their friends together to say goodbye is really an important, meaningful ritual, I think, that transcends religion. I think it's part of the human spirit. You know, a lot of people die suddenly and don't have the opportunity to say goodbye. But when you have an extended illness, a lot of times you do have that opportunity. And I think honesty around that is, is very powerful and is also a theme that I see quite frequently. 
Yeah, that's so profound, Joseph. And you also touched on reconciling relationships. What advice do you have on that front? Like, how do you go about doing that? <laughs> that's a very, very complicated, a great question, <laughs> complicated answer. Uh, you know, what I say is the best way not to have to worry about reconciling relationships is not to hold any grudges in the first place. And <laughs> that's tough. And it's tough. It is tough. It's very, very tough. You know, people wrong us and we respond to that. Uh, we feel offended. We feel, you know, we get angry. So I think that, you know, one of the things that even before end of life situations is if there's a way to give other people the benefit of the doubt and really to, to sort of think like, you know what, they did not mean to offend me. They're having a bad day. This is not about me. This is about them. And, and to really sort of live our lives that way where we are, you know, not putting ourselves in situations to be abused or mistreated, but to give people the benefit of the doubt. If they do it again and again and again, then obviously it changes the, the scope of, of the situation. But the best way not to have to worry about reconciliation at the end of life is to try to maintain those relationships throughout life. That being said, that's not always possible. And it's not always possible to reconcile relationships at the end of life as well. There are many uh, families that I've dealt with over time, and I'm sure we'll deal with in the future, where, I mean, family members don't come to the funeral and, and don't have nice things to say. And, and it obviously is a very sad situation because you want to try to be able to create a sense of peace, a sense of harmony in a relationship. But one of my teachers once said, and I think it's very true, what you don't have in life, you don't have in death. So to the best of our ability to live our best lives in, in relationship with one another and to try not to hold grudges or, or if there is something that's bothering us, to deal with it right away, uh, ultimately will make the end a lot more peaceful. That is so true, Joseph. And I know you also touched on, I guess, living through your values and, and being true to yourself. So how do you go about doing that? You know, I think a lot of it is self-awareness. A lot of it's about how well do we know ourselves? How well do we know what we stand for, what we believe in? And do we live that? You know, are they, are they in line with one another each and every day? You know, are we, are we living the, our best lives? Are we living the way we want to be living? And if not, why not? Uh, so, you know, I think that's just a piece of it. Obviously, it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, absolutely. And Joseph, many young people have a difficult time, I guess, reconciling the heritage and modern life. So what advice do you have on that front? Well, you know, I think that all world religions have some values and, and morals and ethics that speak to people at every age. Sometimes rituals I know don't, um, but because they feel like, oh, that's the rituals of yesteryear. Those are the rituals that, you know, people have been doing for thousands of you know, years and they don't relate to me. And, and what I would say is, well, why don't they relate to you? And is there a way that you can redefine that ritual or redefine that teaching such that it speaks to you. Um, and also, there's power in doing what our ancestors have done for generations and generations. You know, I, one of the other things that I do as rabbi a lot of is I do a lot of weddings. So while I'm on the end of life, most of my days, my work days, I do a lot of weddings on like Sundays or Saturday nights after the Sabbath is over. And when I meet with a young couple, we talk about some of the ancient rituals that even just around wedding that have been done for generations. And a lot of times when I explain those rituals and ask them, well, what do they mean to you? And how could they speak to you where you're at in your life? They really take some time to say, oh, you know what? I never thought about this, but that, that could relate to this. Or maybe the fact that I was my grandparents and my great-grandparents did this actually has more meaning than I realized. I think a lot of it's about education. Yeah, exactly. I guess uh, some of those things are obscured 
by certain experience in life that don't really serve us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, fantastic, Joseph. So what does, you know, according to Judaism, what happens uh, after we die? So there are a lot of different theories. Um, unfortunately, nobody's really come back to tell us. So <laughs> I wish that wasn't the case. Um, but most thinking in Jewish circles centers around our physical body dies and our physical body is buried, ideally in the ground. Um, when we come into this world, let me step back for one second. When we come into this world, we believe that God puts into a body that's been born a soul. And while we're alive, that body and that soul are, are together. In the process of getting ill and, and getting ill toward the end of life, so an end of life illness, what's happening is the body is getting sicker and the soul is pure. Nothing's happening to the soul. The soul is what makes us who we are. But the way the body is made is that it's going to wear out. And if you think about death, I mean, really, death is that our body has at some point been exhausted or let us down or, or been injured or whatever it is, but it's our body ultimately that passes. So we believe that in the process of dying and in death, our, our physical body expires, our soul is released back into the cosmos, back into the universe, and our soul lives either in a world of souls for the next stage of, of that non-bodily existence, or that soul can come back into the physical world and go into another body. So there, there are probably souls that have lived in many, many bodies in the physical world, and there are also souls that now live in a world of souls. Some go on to be angels, and really that's at the discretion of God. But we really do believe that this physical world that we live in together is not the end. It is part of a continuum of life, just different aspects of life. That's a pretty empowering statement, isn't it? I think it's incredibly empowering in a, in a lot of ways. But, you know, when I say to family members and they say, you know, Rabbi, what, what do we believe? I laid out the way I laid it out for you. But and I want them to sort of figure it out for themselves in terms of their own theology. But what's powerful, I think most powerful about it is it means that there is the potentiality of seeing loved ones again. I've seen, you know, the souls of loved ones again. And so to say that, you know, we are reunited with those who have gone before um, and that they just went on to the next world sooner than we did, but that it's not the end. And we do believe also that souls that have been together in one world congregate around one another in other worlds and other non-physical worlds. So to me, that's incredibly comforting. And I think that to provide comfort Look, if it's not true, I guess we'll find that out eventually. But if people are comforted by that belief, I don't see anything wrong with it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And Joseph, so in terms of, I guess, if, if we look at world religion, is there any common ground when it comes to, uh, I guess, end of life and what happens after death? I, I think the common ground more than anything else, and I've done a fair amount of studying of, of different religions and have lots of friends who are clergy and other faiths. A lot of it, I think, comes along the lines of legacy. We all want to leave a legacy and we all want to be remembered. Nobody wants to be forgotten. Everybody wants to be remembered and for people to believe that their life had value. And I think what, whatever we believe in terms of in, in this life or what we believe about what happens in the future life, I think there's a common human element that we all feel, which is that we want our lives to have meaning. We want our... Um, 
We want, we don't want, we, we want our family members and our friends to have been inspired by us, to have been touched by us, to have been maybe even changed for the better because of something we said or did along the line. We want to have an impact. And I think that goes literally across all religious lines. Yeah, absolutely, Joseph. That is so true. And also, like with cancer, obviously, that's incredibly impactful on the person who's potentially, you know, facing end of life or going through treatment. But it's also incredibly tough on the caregiver. And they don't really get enough attention, do they? You know, caregivers, I believe, are God's angels on earth. You know, whether it's a family caregiver or a private duty hired caregiver, nurse, a doctor. Who, I mean, we are blessed to have people around us that that literally care. I mean, care deeply. Unfortunately, caregiving takes its toll in a serious way on caregivers and really has the potential even to shorten the life of a caregiver, depending on how long studies show, depending on how long they, um, they're doing this caregiving. Uh, so uh, caregivers definitely, I think they do it out of, out of love. They do it from their heart, by and large. I mean, some do it out of obligation as well. But um, I think caregivers are often overlooked and caregivers really need to be celebrated and appreciated and recognized for the amazing, amazing love and care that they provide. Is there anything do you think that a caregiver can do to kind of help themselves? Because it's tough on them as well. And sometimes they, I guess they forget to do something for them too. Yeah, I think that if there's any way to for the caregiver to work out a, a system whereby they can get away for a few hours here and there to exercise or to read a book or to do what inspires them, because it can be all-consuming and it can be all-consuming very quickly. And to pay private caregivers is, is not an expensive venture at all. And not every situation allows for that. But in an ideal situation, if there can be a team of caregivers so that everybody gets a break, I mean, that would be the best situation imaginable. Yeah, absolutely. And Joseph, so what, what about someone who's maybe, you know, going through cancer and maybe they don't have the support that they would like to have in their life from, from people around them? What advice do you have on that front? You know, I would Google or go online and look for cancer support groups in their area. Unfortunately, cancer is rampant. I only pray that there's a cure in, in my children's lifetime. And I know they're working furiously on, on trying to find a cure for cancer. But in the interim, I think something like cancer or any kind of illness that is a serious terminal type of illness has the capacity to rock your world in a way you, you never, ever imagined, even if you're feeling good and, and doing well. And I think life in general is extremely complex and hard to go it alone. So, you know, through synagogues, temples, mosques, community centers, you know, to Google cancer support groups, they're all over the world now. And I think to, to try that out and see how that helps or, or, or the impact that it can have is something that is important for cancer or for any kind of illness um, that where a support group would be helpful. Yeah, that makes so much sense, Joseph. And I know we touched on reconciling relationships. So I kind of want to dig into that. And, you know, sometimes we hurt those people that we love. So is there any way to make up and maybe say sorry? I mean, I think that sorry is a very powerful word if used properly. You know, we all know from like kids that their parents tell them to say sorry. And they say, I'm sorry. And they're not really <laughs> Right? They say it because they want to have dessert or whatever. They don't want to have their iPhone taken away. But what does it mean really to be sorry? I, you know, I think that uh, the Jewish definition of an apology is very powerful because 
you know, the first thing, of course, you need to do is you need to recognize what you did wrong, um, which is hard for a lot of people. A lot of people don't want to think about what they did wrong, but we all do wrong. We all make mistakes. None of us is, you know, we're all, we're all fallible. I mean, none of us, God didn't make us perfect. You know, only God is perfect. I mean, God didn't make us that way. So we need to recognize that from, from time to time, we fall short. We, we make a mistake. In Judaism, the Hebrew word for sin or making a mistake is chet. And chet means literally like an archery. You're always trying to hit the, the bullseye. But when you, you don't always hit the bullseye, sometimes you miss the target. So to make a, <laughs> make a mistake in Judaism is it's not catastrophic. I mean, depending on what it is, obviously, but usually it's not catastrophic. It means that you miss the mark. So when in archery, when you miss the mark, what do you do? You try again. You try to <laughs> hit the mark the next time. And we can do that. We have the ability to try again. But before we try again, we have to go to the person that we offended, the person that we hurt in a humble, sincere, authentic way and say, listen, I messed up. I am so incredibly sorry that I hurt you in that way. That was not my intention. Now, again, I'm, every situation is different, but I'm, I'm hoping it was not my intention or you're, you know, <laughs> sometimes it is, but, but expressing that I am really, really sorry. I, your relationship, our relationship, your friendship means something to me and I don't want to lose it. I don't want to sacrifice it. Can you please forgive? Me? So that is like the process that you go through in, in terms of a sincere apology, but the apology only is valid. The apology only takes effect when you're in the same situation the next time and you act differently. You've changed your actions so you don't make the mistake the second time that you made the first time. That's when your apology, even though you've apologized, that's when your apology really is cemented because you learned from your mistake. If we could all learn from our mistakes, Think about how much better the world would be if we would take responsibility for what we do wrong, learn from our mistakes, and try to do better next time. Look, we're going to mess up somewhere else, but that's okay. So we learn and we learn and we learn. And you know what? That's what life is all about. We should be learning new things about ourselves, about each other every single day. Yeah, that's very powerful, Joseph. And I think that goes back to the earlier theme when you were talking about honesty. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think about, again, going back to the, the notion of the couples that I counsel, I do a lot of counseling and, and as well as the families that I deal with too. At the core of every successful relationship is a sense of honesty and the bond of trust. If there's honesty and trust at the core of a relationship, that relationship is going to endure. Yeah, well, that's very profound, Joseph. And, you know, I read a really touching quote on Twitter when you were talking to a hundred-year-old woman and you asked her, what is the best part of being your age? And she answered, no more peer pressure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, got a, I got a kick out of that as well. She thought that, I, I, I mean, I've heard that before, so I don't necessarily think it was original, but you think about it. I mean, to live to be a hundred is quite an achievement. And the truth of the matter is, is those that live to that age often outlive a lot of their friends. In fact, I was just with a woman recently who has a whole new group of friends, 30 years younger than she is because she outlived all of her friends. But peer pressure, just, you know, think about it. Peer pressure makes us, causes us to do things that we might not necessarily do. So um, we got to be careful of peer pressure. Yeah, that's right, because you talked about leaving the legacy, but I guess you don't want to live up to somebody else's expectations. You want to live up to, I guess, your own beliefs and your own values and your own 
expectations in life. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, you want to be your best self to your values and your what, what matters to you, sort of your moral, ethical uh, approach to life. You know, the other thing is that I say to people, too, that in terms of expectations, just in general, that if you lower your expectations, you know, and you don't hold other people to such a high bar, you know, you will be pleasantly, more often than not, you'll be pleasantly surprised. Sometimes our, the issues that we get into with one another is because we hold each other to these ridiculously high expectations. And expectations often have the power or the, they, they can disappoint us. We can be disappointed because people don't live up to what we think they should be doing. We lower our expectations, we can be pleasantly surprised, and that can also help the relationship. So true, Joseph. And I, and I loved your quote also on Twitter, like when you said that no matter how hard we try, we make mistakes. And one of the most liberating teachings in Judaism is that each day we get a second chance. So what does that mean to you? Well, I, I think that, again, one of the teachings in Judaism that inspire me, and there's a lot that inspire me, but the idea that, again, we don't it's not about perfection. It's not about getting it right. It's about, like I said before, it's about learning and growing. Every day we should be growing personally. We should be growing emotionally. We should be growing spiritually, growing psychologically. You know, we're growing physically, whether we like it or not. Some <laughs> of us are growing up. Some of us are growing out. I mean, you know, whatever it is, but <laughs> it is about growth. I mean, it's about personal growth. And for the most part, if we make a mistake, and we take responsibility for it, we do get a second chance. I mean, if you think about it from a biblical perspective, Moses came down with the Ten Commandments, and he saw the, the people worshiping the golden calf, and he broke the tablets. He didn't have God's permission to break the tablets, but thankfully God gave him a second chance. God allowed him to come back up the mountain and get a second set of tablets. And um, I think that's a profound metaphor for you know, we all have the opportunity to get a second chance to do better. And each new day gives us the opportunity to start again, to start fresh, to do better. Yeah, that's fantastic, Joseph. Can you please tell us about your book and how did it come about? And, and how can someone go about finding it? Sure. So as we said at the beginning of our time together, I've been drawn toward end of life care. One of the things that I did when I was in school as a rabbi training to be a rabbi is I wrote a poem uh, called Never Long Enough. And the poem was really uh, a reaction to what I had seen uh, in homes after somebody had died, where a family member or friend, well-meaning, usually, usually it was a friend or acquaintance, well-meaning, would go up to the mourner, offer their condolences, and then say something like, well, at least you had them for 80 years. And, and my feeling was, well, you know, I wanted them for 90 years, or I wanted them for 100 years. Like, what do you mean, at least I had them for 80 years? And so my feeling was, uh, 80 years, okay, that's great, but it's, it's never long enough. We never want to lose the person that we love. We, we never want to say that it was, you know, that that, that, that 80 years was, was enough and I didn't need any more. And we don't feel that way. We bond with people and we develop deep relationships with people. And so I wrote this, this poem called Never Long Enough, which is really a reaction to, to that. You know, the other time that I, other things I would hear in a Shiva house is that they're in a better place. You know, some people might believe that and that's their, that's their choice to believe it. But I don't want to go in and tell a mourner that the loved one who died is in a better place because as a mourner, I would say, well, a better place is here with me. And, and so I want people, I wanted people to be more cognizant and more careful of the things that they say. They don't mean to be hurtful. They, I, I don't believe they mean to be hurtful. 
but we don't know what to say when somebody's died. It leaves us speechless to a certain extent. And, and everybody wants to come up with the most brilliant thing to say so that they can instantly heal the person who is bereft. And there are no brilliant words. The brilliant words don't exist. What exists is you go in and you hug someone, you hold their hand, you give them a kiss, and you bring them my book. <laughs> because, because my book really is, and it's a book that, I, not, not only my book, but a book with my co-author, Dr. Michelle Sider, who's an amazing artist, who illustrated this poem. And it's really all about helping people remember their loved ones and realize that everybody is on their own timeline when it comes to mourning. It's not about it being over in a, in a period of, of days or, you know, you go to pick up the phone a month later because you used to call your loved one every day. And so this is really a book that gives permission to people to mourn at their own pace and to embrace the memory of loved ones. It's called Never Long Enough, and it's available on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Well, there's an incredible touch, and, and thank you so much, Joseph, for your time, and thank you so much for what you do in the world. Thank you, and thank you for the opportunity to uh, talk with you today. And again, I appreciate the opportunity to dialogue. Cool. Thanks so much. Hey, this is Joe Bakmutsky, and thanks so much for listening. Listen, I just want to take a moment to really thank you for your time, because I know that it's precious, but also I want to congratulate you. I really want to congratulate you on listening to this podcast, because as we both know, cancer is incredibly hard to deal with, and you don't want to go it alone. And you want all the support and all the advice that you can get to, to stay on top of it, to stay on top of your worries during cancer. So I, I want to tell you about the tools that I have available on my website on simplifycancer.com that can really help you. So all of these tools are available under the tools menu on simplifycancer.com. So tool number one, that's the first visit oncologist checklist. So if the word oncologist bothers you, like I, I know it really freaked me out. If you are worried about your first appointment, as, as again, as we all are, then this can really help you with some key questions that you want to ask. The key thing, of course, is having a list like this means that you won't forget something important, which is easy enough to do when, when you've got a million things going through your head. Plus, it's a handy PDF, so it's easy to print and write down all the answers so you don't forget. So then there is the outcome map. Like This is a really simple but really powerful tool that I have developed to help you deal with worries about something specific, something that's bothering you right now. So maybe you're waiting for your test results and your mind's off running in a million different directions. Or maybe you've got an ache or pain and you don't know what it is. Like, is it cancer? Is that a side effect from treatment? Or maybe is that something else altogether? So it will kind of help you to put it all together so you you can, you can get a bird's eye view and decide how to best deal with it. Number three is mastering your emotions during cancer. Now, this is a walk through all the stages that you go through as a patient and as a caregiver through anger and through guilt and fear and how you can address your needs, your emotional needs on every level during cancer. Like it came about after many discussions that I had with my friend and my colleague, her name is Jill. 
her husband had prostate cancer. So, uh, so he, she has this kind of caregiver's perspective. And we both like talked about how there are so many times um, when you go through cancer, when you kind of just feel alone and you're struggling, you're on this roller coaster of emotions and it's kind of full on and it's hard to deal with. So there, there's an audio version that comes along with it and there's a link to download the MP3 if that's what you want or you can just listen to it online and, you know, and just uh, listen along with the PDF. So another one is testicular cancer support kit. This has a one-page summary of what the testicular cancer journey looks like that you can check out for yourself or share with your family or friends. Like it's got a helicopter view of all the symptoms and treatments and who's involved and what happens when. And it's really great one kind of page view of like what happens during testicular cancer. Plus, the kit also includes like ready-to-go email templates for your family, friends, and your workmates. So you can kind of share what's what's happened. Maybe you want to break the news on cancer and you don't want to think about and wreck your brain on what to write. So you can just copy and paste. You can tweak it a little bit so to suit your personality and you're good to go. And I've also done the same thing for prostate cancer. So check out the prostate cancer support kit. Again, it's showing all the treatment options and stages on one page. So you can walk someone through it, like someone from your family or a friend. And they know what to expect and how it all happens. And of course, when you sign up for any of my tools, and we just talked about, you'll also get an email from me when, when there's a new episode that's kind of relevant to you right now and other news from the world of Simplified Cancer. And listen, I'm, I'm going to keep on asking you about how I'm doing here. I mean, are you getting what, you, what you're looking for? Was there something in particular that, that really made sense to you? Or is there a question that you want to ask? Or maybe there's, there's just something that you, you want to get off your chest, like, please, I need to know. Just reply to any of my emails or send me an email right now. My email is joe at simplifycancer.com. So that's J-O-E at simplifycancer.com. And send me an email whenever you've got anything on your mind. So again, I want to thank you for listening. Till next time. 